We are very privileged and honored to be joined by Joshua Wilson, Pastor Joshua Wilson. He has come here before, he has preached before us before, but uh, he is a close contact for us, uh, somebody that we've cherished a relationship uh, over the years, um, and he co-teaches also at Geneva. So let's please uh, welcome Mr. Wilson, Pastor Wilson. Thank you for the warm welcome. Uh, looking forward to talking with you again today. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 6 in your Bible with me. I have to admit, as I listened to the beautiful worship, I did feel like dancing, and I don't always. But if I had, you would have looked at me and said, that's foolishness. So I'm going to stick to what I know today, <laughs> and that's this. Book of Galatians chapter 6. This provides sort of the launching point into the message today. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 9. It says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to open your word today. Uh, as we just prayed, we need it. Um, things going on in our world can be disorienting. Uh, we're living in a crazy time. And God, I pray that we would be even more anchored in your truth and your word. And I just pray today, God, that uh, what would come through is not what I have to say, but what your word teaches. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You reap what you sow. Um, I know this is a strange time to bring up the book of Christmas Carol, because you usually talk about that not in summer months, but December. Um, but I had to, because as I think about um, the character Ebenezer Scrooge, he helps us to think about something important. If you remember, Ebenezer Scrooge is that wealthy business owner who is described by Charles Dickens as a clutching, covetous old sinner. Uh, in fact, I think Dickens gives us the worst character in a lot of ways that we could think of. He's selfish, he's prideful, he refuses to give his time, his money to anyone. But of course, you probably know, I mean, this isn't a spoiler, I don't think, uh, but by the end of the book, Ebenezer Scrooge is a reformed man. He is everything a, a godly person should be. He's generous, he's kind, he gives his money away. Uh, he has become totally transformed. And there are a lot of redemption stories like that we could talk about, a lot of characters in literature that go through a transition. Uh, they're the worst kinds of people, and then by the end, they've been totally transformed. But the truth is that Ebenezer Scrooge and those other characters are not the rule. They are the exception. In real life, that's not usually how it works. People don't spend their lives sowing bad decisions, bad actions, and bad character only to be transformed in the last few years of their life, even though that certainly happens without question. But much more likely is what Paul says here in Galatians, not that some transformation would suddenly happen that we can just live how we want and trust that at the end we'll change and make the right decisions, but that the truth is we reap what we sow as we go about our lives on earth. And uh, this is our launching point into the message for today, and we're not going to stay in Galatians. We're going to look at uh, lessons from the life of David, family lessons from the life of David. We're going to flip around a little bit uh, today. But the reason I chose David is because I think he's the most complete character in the Bible, aside from Jesus, of course. 
Um, but what's interesting is that we are told David is a man after God's own heart. And so often the kings of Israel are judged by what David was like. Um, he's sort of the litmus test, the ruler. But when we actually go back and look at the life of David, and we have a lot of material on David from the end of, actually partway through 1 Samuel, the entire book of 2 Samuel, and even into 1 Kings, that's a lot of material. And when we look back, we don't find someone who is being lionized. We don't find someone who is perfect in every way. We find just the opposite. Someone who did some shocking things on a large scale, but also even some bad choices on a smaller scale, if we're looking closely. And I'm really glad that David is in the Bible because, uh, as I'm sure you know, the Bible doesn't simply teach by positive example. The lesson generally isn't, see this Old Testament character, do those things. Stories work differently. They paint pictures for us and allow us to interpret them. So that's what we're going to do. And so we'll see three lessons from the life of David. And I would even say three family lessons in general, three family lessons from the life of David. What can we learn about you reap, uh, you sow what you reap what you sow in the life of David as a parent, as uh, a spouse, and as an employee? Because David does in fact reap what he sows. As a parent, he reaps what he sows. As a spouse, he reaps what he sows. And he wasn't an employee, but we'll talk about how that applies. First of all, let's flip back a little bit to 2 Samuel 11. Uh, you don't have to turn there because I'm going to read, but you can if you want to or click there. And 2 Samuel 11 may ring uh, a note with you because it's where Samuel, uh, rather where David commits a sin with Bathsheba when he sees her on the rooftop and um, has her come, uh, has her sent for. Uh, so let's look at verses 1 through 6. It says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, <clears throat> but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. And what happens after that is eventually David has arranged to have Bathsheba's husband killed um, in the uh, line of duty in battle. If we flip ahead one page uh, to chapter 13, we read something very similar about David's son Amnon with some very important differences. And this is a difficult read, uh, but it's here in our Bible and it's an important one for today. So uh, listen as I read verses 5 through 19. And what's happened to get you up to speed is that David's son Amnon has taken note of his half-sister uh, Tamar uh, and found that he's attracted to her, and his friend says, you don't have to wait for anything. If you like her, we can work out a plan. And that's what we're going to read about. He says this in verse 5, Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat from her hand. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. 
When the king came to uh, see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to be brought and make some special bread in my sight, so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough and kneaded it and made bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where would I get rid of my disgrace? What about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had ever loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. And so he does send her out. As we read, I think the author, uh, Samuel, wants us to see some uh, important things, uh, in similarities, I should say. Uh, uh, we don't know actually who the author is for sure, but important things uh, that are similar between these two stories. First of all, the chapter starts in a very similar way. Just like David sends for Bathsheba, the same word is used, Amnon sends for Tamar. Amnon seeks instant gratification, just like David did. In other words, the implication is that we've seen something very much like this before, even in terms of the sequence of events and how they play out, what order they happen in. The author wants us to connect to these two stories to see something important because there are also some important differences. And we'll see that for each of these differences, the sequence with Tamar and Amnon is much worse than the one with David. And first of all, this is not consensual. Secondly, Amnon does not marry Tamar as David does Bathsheba. Uh, Amnon does not repent, whereas David does repent uh, about a year after his sin with Bathsheba. And finally, there is another murder. David had Uriah murdered by the enemy in battle, which we mentioned, which is bad enough, but it's worse in this second iteration uh, because Absalom commits murder against his own brother, Amnon. Uh, so Tamar was Absalom's sister. Uh, nothing is done to get back at Amnon, and so this, like the sequence with David, ends with another murder. So what's the point? We see David's actions paved the way for his son Amnon to go even further than his father had done. One thing God <clears throat> has been teaching me over the last several months is that my kids actually catch more than they're taught uh, from me. And I think when we look back as parents, uh, and I'm very much right there now, we will look back and realize that our, our kids didn't so much do what we said as much as what we did. And so I've realized as a parent that I can tell them to be kind with their words. I can tell them to uh, be unselfish. But if I'm talking uh, selfishly, if I'm being unkind with my words, then what they're actually going to be formed by is what I'm doing. And that's a lot harder <laughs> than uh, just saying the right things. Because I'm not too bad at saying the right things. We have devotions as a family every night. 
uh, we try to memorize some scripture together, and I remind my kids of scripture passages uh, as I have opportunity throughout the week when something is going wrong. Um, but I've really been challenged lately to ask myself, am I even doing that? Am I talking kindly to my wife and kids? Am I having my own devotions? And so on. We reap what we sow in our actions. That's the first lesson for us as parents, for me as a parent. And secondly, with our discipline, uh, we will reap what we sow when it comes to our children in terms of discipline. And we only have one verse to look at. And it's the very next verse, chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 21, right after this terrible story plays out in Amnon's room, we see this short statement. It says, when David heard all of this, he was furious. What's interesting is that there, that's the end of the story of David when it comes to this scene. There's never any mention of David speaking to Amnon about his sin. He, abs he does absolutely nothing. And I've been puzzled by this. Why does David do nothing in the face of such a terrible event in the lives of his three children? I think when we read through chapter 11 and into and through chapter 13, it becomes clear. David is broken without question about what had happened with his children. But since this chapter follows on the heels of his sin with Bathsheba, I think the implication is he is afraid to speak up because of his own sin. In fact, because of the similarity of his own sin, felt as though he had no right, perhaps, no position of authority when it came to this, to speak up about his own similar sin. And I think oftentimes I as a parent are afraid, and maybe we as parents are sometimes afraid to discipline our kids for things that we had done, in sense that somehow it's hypocritical for me to discipline my child when I know that I had done the same thing or done even worse things than my children. The thinking goes, how can I expect my kids to do better than I did? How can I discipline them when I have done the same sins? But I think it's a mistake for a couple reasons. For one thing, David is disciplined for his sin with Bathsheba. God doesn't withhold discipline from him. It's pretty severe discipline as well. His child dies. Um, and in fact, uh, the fact that God is the one who disciplined him shows us that that was the loving thing to do. And you see, to withhold discipline because we feel bad about doing it is to misunderstand discipline. Discipline done the right way isn't a curse to our kids, it's a blessing. And to not discipline in a godly way is not to do our kids a favor. It's not to do my kids a favor, it's to do them wrong. So here David is abrogating his responsibilities as a father. Maybe he thinks he's being magnanimous and kind and long-suffering and patient, but the text would suggest he is being absent when his kids need him to step in the most. He is, after all, the king of an entire country, and yet he's not managing his own household and his own children. And the result's an absent father who doesn't take action himself, and so we shouldn't be surprised that in the end, his son Absalom tricks Amnon, we won't read about it, but tricks Amnon and kills him for his sin against his sister. I encourage you, parents, do not feel bad about disciplining your children. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his children, but who loves their children is careful to discipline them. So we reap what we sow in terms of our uh, actions. We reap what we sow in terms of our discipline. And lastly, when it comes to parents, we reap what we sow in terms of our attention. 
1 Kings chapter 1, we read about Adonijah, yet another son of David. He had several wives, as you probably know. And this particular son, Adonijah, decides that as his father is dying, he wants to make moves to take the kingship from his uh, father. So it says, when David was old and well advanced in years, he couldn't keep warm or even put the covers over him. So his servant said to him, let us look for a young virgin to attend to the king and to take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may keep warm. And they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, uh, but the king had no intimate relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Hagith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by saying, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next to Absalom. What happens is that um, Adonijah has almost made himself king until Bathsheba, of all people, comes to David and says, what is this? You told me that my son would be king, uh, which suggests that from the beginning, Bathsheba may have been angling for a chance to uh, narrate herself into the line of David, which she does, actually. She uh, gets herself into the line of, uh, of Jesus as well, although Matthew doesn't name her. There are five women mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew 1, and uh, Bathsheba is the only one who isn't given uh, her name. Her name doesn't appear. It says the wife of Uriah. Um, but she does the thing here. She is successful. And as it turns out, David uh, has to take steps to make sure that his son Solomon is coronated instead. But maybe you notice this fascinating phrase. It says, parenthetically, right after it says, Adonijah said, I will be king. His father David had never interfered with him by saying, why do you behave as you do? <laughs> now, <clears throat> a picture emerges of David here as somebody who just lets his son go his own way. And uh, perhaps it would be, you know, common sense to think kids would appreciate that in parenting. Uh, but in this case, and I would say probably in most cases, his hands-off approach to let my son do what I want, he wants, I don't want to interfere and be a smothering parent and so on, uh, he takes that to the extreme and the result is not an appreciative son. It's one who, instead of comforting his father at his death, uh, is plotting behind his back. And we can note in passing how sad it is that David has to call for some total stranger to come and comfort him while he's laying on his deathbed. I dare say, you know, we as parents would hope for something a little better than what David gets, especially a man after God's own heart. He has no family members. None of his wives are there. Not told his children are gathered around him, but instead they say, well, what would David like? A good-looking woman from, uh, you know, who's a Shunammite, and let's bring her in. And so David spends his waning days with a total stranger next to his bed. It's one of the saddest and coldest passages, I think, to me. But David did not sow an attention to his sons. Someone has rightly said the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And I think that's true. Uh, David is not even hating his son, he's totally ignored him. You know, <clears throat> to bring this down to practical terms, it's easy to ignore our kids, I think, more than ever. I'm speaking to myself more than anyone, but I see parents all the time that are on their cell phones instead of engaging with their kids who are right next to them. A lot of times kids are too. 
So I started to think about this. You know, God has provided for all of our needs uh, in his own way. And so if you think about it, look at what your kids do for you. The brain that God has given your child is faster than the fastest supercomputer. It's true. By a long shot. They have memory. They have more storage space than the best computer that will ever be invented. They can store more memories uh, and sometimes some bad memories about you that they bring up at awkward times, I've noticed my kids do sometimes, just proving that they have really good memories. They have apps. You can click on, go through the baseball, read a book together, author a book together, which I've been trying to do uh, with my kids, build a Ninjago Lego set, go out for coffee and talk about school, go for a bike ride, so many of these things. And I know probably most of you are doing well, but sometimes you need to be reminded of the things that you're doing well, encouraged to keep doing them. I know that that's the case for me. So David reaps what he sows with Adonijah in terms of lack of attention, but did you realize that there is an opposite danger as well? And that's too much attention. And we see that in the life of David as well. Because Adonijah, as you probably know, is not the only son who wants to supplant his father as king. The other one is Absalom. And that becomes a much worse situation, actually. And David ends up being on the run from Absalom for quite a while. And so you see that the damage can be done in the life of a child, not just by ignoring them, but also by giving them too much attention. And I think that David did, in one sense, love uh, Absalom too much. Not love in the right sense, but perhaps had spoiled him. Because what happens is that, and we won't turn there today, but when Absalom is killed, he's caught up in a tree. Joab, nobody wants to kill him. I mean, understandably, he's the king's son. Joab, the commander of the king's army, who has been closer than any wife was to David his whole life, uh, has to take matters into his own hands. He goes and finds Absalom, and he kills him. They send back word to David. And what does David do? Instead of rejoicing and thanking his men for all that he had done, he is devastated to hear news of his son's death. And one, one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of the Bible, David says, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, I wish that I had died instead of you, my son, my son. And it's at this point that David speak, that uh, Joab speaks up to David. In 2 Samuel 19, verses 5 through 8, when Joab hears David lamenting in front of all of his soldiers uh, who had been defending David and taking care of him for so long. He says this, Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men. You have, you have just saved your life in the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their Sons mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have now come upon your youth. This is Joab speaking to the king. I mean, that is quite a line to take with your king. It shows you the confidence he had and the closest that he had. And of course, Joab has dirt on, da on David. I mean, he's the one who arranged for the death of Uriah the Hittite and a lot of other things about David. And he has that uh, ability to talk to David this way. But he's right. 
The key line is that you hate the ones who love you and you love the ones you hate who hate you. Um, maybe that David had loved his son too much, loved even more than he loved God. One son David ignored, another one he pampered, the result is the same. They both have no regard for their father. Uh, may we find a better balance than David did. We reap what we sow in our attention. And secondly, as a spouse, <clears throat> these next two are much more brief than the parenting one. But something happens between David and his first wife, Michal. Uh, may not have known that David's first wife was Michal. And uh, what happens is Saul, while he's chasing down David, David has been told he's going to be king. Saul hears about this, and that's why he spends his life chasing David. Saul hears that his uh, daughter, Michal, has fallen in love with David. And he says, yes, this is perfect. Uh, I'm going to set a ridiculously high bride price for Michal. And David will never be able to, uh, to make it out of this alive. Because what he uh, decides to do is to have, tell David, you can marry Michal if you kill 100 Philistines. And uh, so David goes out with his men. He kills 200 Philistines. He comes back and pays the bride price. And Michal, of course, is thrilled. Uh, she had fallen in love with David right around the time David kills Goliath. Apparently being a giant killer was something that uh, she, you know, appreciated and liked and attracted her to David. So David goes out, he kills 200 Philistines uh, and ends up being able to marry Michal. And we know that Michal really loved David because at one point she deceives her father uh, in order to protect David. So she was very committed to him. But when we look at Samuel chapter 6, something has gone wrong with David and Michal. There is a brief episode that happens between them that shows uh, that there has been more going on than we've been told. And what happens is David is able to rescue the ark from the Philistines, and he brings it back into Jerusalem, uh, which would have been the biggest national event you can imagine. Uh, because the Ark of the Covenant was, you know, the mark of blessing on the people. But when he's coming back into the city, the problem is he's walking in ahead of the Ark and he's celebrating. And he takes off a lot of his clothes because he's probably hot from dancing in the hot sun. It says he's wearing a linen ephod, which is basically a big onesie. Uh, those of you who remember uh, changing babies, you know, you got the little snaps down there and make life easier for you. And they end up running around in their onesies a lot. Uh, well, that's what David is wearing. And we're told that Michal looks down from a tower and sees David dancing in his linen ephod and sees the young ladies clapping for him and, you know, praising him and, and all of this. And, uh, you know, whenever you see somebody in a tower looking down in the Bible, it's usually bad. David is looking down from a tower uh, when he sees Bathsheba. You know, people get millstones dropped on their heads from people up in towers. Nebuchadnezzar looks down in Babylon on a, uh, from a rooftop and he says, look at all this kingdom that I've created. And then he becomes an animal for seven years and, and other things too. And so when we're told that she's in this tower, it's like warning sign. And indeed what she sees upsets her because she says something very acidic to Daniel, something shocking. And it's like, whoa, there was more underneath the surface with Michal than we had thought. It says, verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today 
disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. That word, by the way, vulgar, if you remember uh, where Jesus says, uh, anyone who says raka will be answerable to the courts. It's one of the worst terms you could use. It's an Aramaic term, which means like worthless, totally worthless. Um, and the upshot of this is, David says, I was dancing before God. What happens here? David doesn't show attention to his spouse. Mikal harbors things, becomes bitter, and lets it out in a blow. And the re result is what David says in verse 23, Mikal had no children until the day of her death. This ends the relationship between David and Mikal. When we go through these kinds of times with spouses, I mean, something brought David and Mikal together. And I think all couples go through this. There is lack of attention. There is bitterness and resentment building up. Both Mikal and David are to blame. What they needed to do was remember what brought them together because something brought them together. They both wanted the marriage. And in those times, what they need to do is to go back and remember what that thing was together instead of letting bitterness take root. Lastly, and very briefly, we've seen as a parent, we've seen as a spouse. Let's look really quickly. Uh, David, the employee, and of course he wasn't ever an employee, but we'll see that David looks out for people who are the most vulnerable. He takes on more than he gives out. And I think this is one of the keys. I mean, this is one of the things I've been trying to do a better job of in my own career. Uh, there are always opportunities to either, in, as you go about your career, to uh, you know, put burdens on people to say, well, I can't do that. Somebody else is going to have to take care of it. Or uh, perhaps without recognition or appreciation to take on more than you can bear. I'd suggest, especially if we're working in a place that is not a Christian workplace, this is very strong because this is what Jesus did. He took on more than what was his due. He took on more than he could bear. It's um, a strong example. Um, we don't have time to turn there, but we'll see that, uh, you know, this is one of the stories about David that, do people still use flannel graphs? Do the kids use those big flannel graph things? It's like soft uh, carpet that you stick stickers on to teach them Bible stories. It's not a thing anymore. The flannel graph days were awesome. I still think the reason I love the Old Testament is because my teachers used to have these little you know, David and his coat of many colors, and, uh, you know, David and Goliath, and Jesus filling the pitchers with the water that turned to wine, and it all came to life. Uh, but I remember this story in particular. David is in a cave. Saul comes in. He actually is coming in to use the restroom, we think, and um, David sneaks up, and he cuts off a little bit of Saul's robe. Saul leaves, and then the next day, David holds this up. He's shouting to him across some distance, maybe a canyon or something. And he says, look, Saul, I could have killed you. I have this piece from your robe. You were in our cave last night. In other words, he's, David's commitment throughout his time in this period is, I am not going to do the job myself. I, will not, I refuse to kill Saul. Even though he had been promised the kingship, he takes the Lord's anointed in that position extremely seriously. But I've always been puzzled. And, and Saul, of course, says, you know, he, he basically becomes broken over it, and he asks David to forgive him. He doesn't stay in that position, but in the moment he does. But it says that David is devastated by what he had done. And I've always wondered, what's such a big deal? I mean, he could have killed him. Um, you know, all he does is cut off a little piece of his robe. But then I remembered what happened several chapters earlier. When Saul is approached by Samuel, he's told, you will no longer be king because of some of the choices that he had made. And Saul is devastated over this. 
And he pleads with Samuel, please don't give the kingship to somebody else. And as Samuel is walking away, Saul falls down and grabs Samuel's robe, and it rips a piece off of the robe. And if you remember that scene, what Samuel says to Saul is that is exactly how the kingdom is going to be ripped away from you. So what is David doing here? I think David knew about that scene. And uh, why is David so grief-stricken? I really think David is showing that he knows about that. And he's saying, see, the first piece. This is a loaded gesture that David is giving, and it's out of characteristic for David to do. This isn't the David that we know. He's not the kind of guy who shows spite. He's not the kind of guy who takes matters into his own hands. As employees, you know, we've seen two ways that we should not be like David. Uh, but to be fair to David, there is some good there too. And I think that we would want to be like David the employee because he refuses to, um, even as he has opportunity, he refuses to malign people behind their backs. He refuses to be, you know, um, subversive. Uh, he lets the chips fall where they may. He does the right thing, and he lets God take care of the rest. And, of course, you know, it says, um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. David really claims that. And my hope and prayer for myself and for you is that we claim that as well as employees, that we can let God take care of righting wrongs, uh, being overlooked when we think we shouldn't have been, and... Um, may we also take on more than what seems our due, as I think David did as well. Because we reap what we sow as employees. We reap what we sow as parents in action and discipline and attention. We reap what we sow as spouses. Are there ways you need to invest in your spouse this week? We reap what we sow as employees. Is your knowledge of the unjust suffering of Christ speaking into your and my work ethic? And, you know, as we close, every, every command, every ethical guideline in the Bible is perfectly fulfilled by Christ. And so we would be totally justified at looking at Christ and saying, how, is, how has he done this perfectly? How, has he, how did he reap what he sowed? The laws of the universe don't change for Jesus. You know, back in Galatians, Paul is saying, you reap what you sow. It's just a fact. You jump off a building and gravity will take you down. You can't argue with it. And so we should expect to see this principle in the life of Jesus as well. And of course, it's true. Jesus sows in his actions. He's the perfect example to his children. He, shows, he sows in discipline. Uh, Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those he loves. And he sows in attention. Can't tell you how many times I've been you know, rebuked by reading in the Gospels that Jesus, as busy as he is, stops and takes time for, for children or for people who are um, on the margins, who don't have anything to offer him. He sows perfectly in his attention. And I have to tell you, um, if that's where we stop, we'll be crushed by the example of Christ. Uh, every time we read about Jesus, it's something we can't do. And so ultimately, we have to approach Jesus first and foremost not as an example, but as our Savior. We can only go on to follow this example once we have passed through the gate of belief and faith in Christ. And then once we've, once we've done that, we're in a position to sow what we reap, to reap what we sow, rather, in terms of these earthly relationships as parents, as spouses, and as employees. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this principle. It's a hard one um, that we uh, reap what we sow, but Paul also says, let us not be weary in doing well, for we will reap uh, if we do not faint, if we do not give up. And I know, God, that uh, you know, for me and for, I'm sure, many people, um, there may even be a daily temptation to sort of throw in the towel. Um, doing good isn't maybe seeming to have a good effect on my family, upon my life, upon my career, and so on. Um, but that's where we need the truth that David shares, uh, that rather that Paul shares. God, may we this week um, not lose heart, not give up, um, give us the faith to continue on, and uh, with the knowledge that eventually we will sow the things that we will reap the things that we sow. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.